Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. This is the second part of a two-part series on Galen. If you're interested in some biographical information on this influential Greek physician from the Roman Empire, go back to the last episode and have a listen. However, this episode can stand alone if you're only interested in the influence he's had on surgery and anatomy, as it has certainly been a lot. There's plenty to cover, so let's dissect the work of Galen in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Galen practiced medicine for more than 50 years and achieved much prestige through his reputation as a healer, his social standing, his prolific writing, and his ruthless demolition of his enemies in every debate and showdown, essentially becoming the last word on medicine in the classical world. But part of the reason that he seemed to be head and shoulders above the rest of the physicians from antiquity was the sheer volume of his work that has survived. The most modern edition of his works runs to 22 volumes, including about 150 titles, and is one-eighth of all the classical Greek literature that survives, and roughly half of all the surviving ancient Greek medical writing. One example is the Kuhn edition, written in Greek with a Latin translation that runs over 20,000 pages. Karl Gottlob Kuhn of Leipzig, Germany, created this between 1821 and 1833, and it is considered the most complete collection of Galen's writings. Other works exist only in Arabic translations. And sadly, many of his treaties on philosophy, meaning in this context logic, physics, and ethics, were lost in the fire that destroyed the Temple of Peace in 191 CE, as mentioned in the previous episode. What I didn't mention was that the so-called Temple of Peace in Rome was funded by the sacking of Jerusalem during the Jewish-Roman Wars, and the interior was decorated with the treasures taken by the Roman army. Given this prodigious output, Galen's theories persisted and dominated medical thought for centuries, possibly because no other such figure appeared in the ancient Roman world before its fall, and then there were centuries of stagnation through the Dark Ages. This was unfortunate, as some of his erroneous concepts of anatomy limited human knowledge of the body, which was a detriment to the development of surgery. While many contributed to correcting this, it was Vesalius and his famous work De Humani Corporis Fabrica Libri Septum, or on the fabric of the human body, see podcast episode 81, that really changed Galen's hold over the medical establishment. In this episode, we'll explore some of those writings as they relate to anatomy and surgery to get a sense of what all those countless physicians who studied Galen were learning. Because of this, there will be more quotes than usual, but I think you'll find it useful to paint a picture of surgical practice and anatomical knowledge in ancient Rome. We'll break it down by specialty as sort of an arbitrary way of dividing up his work. And as mentioned before, we won't cover every single thing, but I'll try to give a broad overview that I think you'll find interesting. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, a note of explanation about where Galen's anatomical knowledge came from. As we covered in the previous episode, human dissection was taboo in the ancient world, for the most part, with some exceptions, and so most of Galen's anatomical discoveries were from the sources available to him. Cows, sheep, pigs, and, most especially, Barbary macaques type of old-world monkey found in North Africa. We can thank the geographical extent of the Roman Empire for these being available to Galen as he lived at a time when the empire was at its largest. Now, the name Barbary macaques comes from the name of an ethnic group found predominantly in North Africa known as the Berbers. This name comes from the Greek word barbaros, meaning foreigner, and as I think we've covered before, it's thought to have originally referred to all non-Greek speakers as it was imitating their speech with the nonsense syllables barbar, as this was how these languages sounded to the Greeks. The Romans would further apply the name to their northern neighbors, and it eventually became the English word barbarians. 
Macaque is a little less exciting as it comes from French, who bored it from the Portuguese mocaco, who themselves may have bored it from an African language called Bantu and simply means monkey. So let's begin with some quotes from Galen about the importance of anatomy to the practice of surgery. Quote, If a man is ignorant of the position of a vital nerve, muscle, artery, or important vein, he is more likely to maim his patients or to destroy rather than save life, end quote. And he also highlighted a practical approach to acquiring this information. Quote, Certain knowledge, as the number and appearance of the muscles of the tongue, would be additional but not primary or essential. An intelligent man may grasp the matter sufficiently by two or three careful dissections, by which is revealed what is useful for medical practice and secondarily for the knowledge of nature, end quote. Here are a few examples of his practical approach to the application of anatomy. Quote, the professed experts in anatomy were mistaken about certain parts, notably as to the palm and sole. Because of such ignorance, a certain surgeon of repute, excising a sphacellation of the wrist, rendered the palm insensitive, end quote. I mean, change the wording a little, and you could imagine that statement being made in a malpractice suit today. Now, FYI, Sphacillation is an old term for gangrene. The Greek word for gangrene is sphakalos. Now here's another just because they're so great. Quote, What could be more useful to a physician for the treatment of war wounds, for extraction of missiles, for excision of bones, for treatment of dislocations, fractures with ulcerations, than to know accurately all the parts of the arms and legs? End quote. And here's an example of Galen's writing where he defines surgery itself. Quote, Surgery is the methodical removal of what are called foreign tissues by means of incision and approximation, together with the aftertreatment of wounds and incisions practiced on the human body. All the operations in surgery fall under two heads, separation and approximation. Approximation has to do with the reduction and dressing of fractures, reduction of di and dislocation of the joints, reductions of prolapsed intestines, uterus, or rectum, Suture of the abdomen and restoration of tissue deficiencies, as in the nose, lips, and ears. Division is concerned with simple incisions, circumcisions, elevations of the skin, scalping, excision of veins, amputation, cauterizations, scraping, smoothing, and excisions with the saw, end quote. That's kind of a clever way to break it down. Separation and approximation. Okay, let's start with some general surgery. As every medical student knows, the anatomy of the abdominal wall is one of the first and most important things you learn. Here is Galen's description of it, which is surprisingly detailed. Quote, In the mid-abdomen, the wall is made up of skin, fascia, the thin membranous tendons of two muscles called by the Greeks aponeuroses, the bodies of two muscles which extend from the thorax to the pubic bone, a layer of fascia, and the peritoneum. The two membranous tendons cleave so closely together that labor is required to separate them, and by many anatomists, they are considered as one. Four finger breadths from the midline of the abdomen, we meet the oblique muscles, end quote. Now, Galen actually preferred a paramedian incision, meaning off the midline, likely because it was less prone to ventral hernia formation. And speaking of hernias, Galen's method of managing them, when there was incarcerated, meaning entrapped bowel, was to apply heat or enlarge the wound fairly conservative methods of reducing a hernia. Quote, Hence, the cure, meaning for intestinal protrusion, consists of warming it by a sponge wrung out in hot water, or better still, in hot astringent, which is a chemical that shrinks or constricts tissue, 
wine, which heats more than water and also strengthens the intestine. If we fail in our endeavor to reduce the inflation, it is necessary to enlarge the peritoneal wound. When the intestines protrude through a large wound, a perfect assistant is required, one able to gather them in his hands and press them into the abdomen so as to leave the opening free for the wound to be brought together and stitched by the operator. Quote. He also described treating umbilical hernias by passing a double thread through the navel with a needle and tying around it. He even goes into detail on abdominal closures. Quote, In stitching, the needle should be thrust from without inwards through skin and rectus muscle, and then from within outwards through the muscle and skin, repeating this until the wound is closed. Some operators include the peritoneum in the stitches, but this is not usual. The dressing should be soft wool dipped in oil, moderately warm, and cover the space between the flanks and armpits, end quote. On the treatment of abscesses, quote, We employ the simple incision in all abscesses. One should incise longitudinally to the limb, not transversely. Curved incisions shaped like the myrtle leaf may be employed in the axilla, groin, buttocks, and seat. Elevation of skin in the forehead when there is a watery discharge from the eyes, and scalping when the skin is over the occiput, or of the prepuce turns black. Amputation when the limbs turn black, and excisions in fractures of the skull, end quote. Now, Galen emphasized the removal of necrotic tissue wherever located, what we would call debridement or debridement, and there's a little controversy for you. Now, many pronounce it debridement, but I clearly remember an older orthopedic surgeon who taught our small group session who said, debride is the one standing next to de groom in an Italian wedding. A little offside, perhaps, but certainly memorable. It comes from the French verb debrider, which literally means to unbridle or unharness. Couldn't find a great explanation for the connection to the surgical meaning. The best I could find is that it can also mean the removal of adhesions, which are like the straps of a harness, maybe? If you know better, please drop me a line and let me know. He also described treating hemorrhoids and fistula in ano, quote, In hemorrhoids, we pass a thin double linen thread through the base, tie them off, and cut them off after two hours. Of fistulae, some are not penetrating and so have only one opening. Penetrating fistulae have an opening either into the rectum or on the outside. Those which perforate into the rectum we treat by pushing a probe through them, then introduce a finger into the rectum, stretch the rectal wall over the tip of the probe, and excise it from below upwards. The procedure is suited likewise to those that open on the outside. In a perforated case, one should divide all the healthy tissues with the sharp edge of the probe-pointed knife. Some, instead of incising or excising the tissue between the openings, tie a linen thread to the end of the probe, tie it tightly around the overlying tissues which have been divided, and tighten the knots each succeeding day till it cuts through the tissues, and then induce healing with the Egyptian remedy, and I don't know what that refers to. This method of treatment was first described by Hippocrates, end quote. Galen described cancer of the breast and advised early operation through healthy tissue, stating that the cure could not be attained unless one got out all the roots. In fact, it was his description of breast tumors which gave us the word cancer. Let me explain. In his treatise on the method of healing, he wrote about an advanced case of breast cancer. Quote, we have often seen in the breasts a tumor exactly similar to that animal, the crab, which is cancer in Latin or carcinose in Greek. For just as in the crab the feet are on either side of the body, so also in this disease the veins extending from the unnatural tumor make a shape similar to a crab. This disease we have cured often in its beginning, 
but when it has progressed to a substantial size, no one can cure it without surgery, end quote. And that's also why the astrological sign cancer is represented by a crab. The more you know. But did you know this? The term carcinization has been floating around social media for a while, but it's actually a fascinating concept. First introduced in 1916, it was defined as, quote, one of the many attempts of nature to evolve a crab, end quote. Essentially, it's when a non-crab crustacean evolves into a crab-like form, something known as convergent evolution. Another example of that would be both bats and whales separately evolving echolocation. This carcinization has happened five separate times. Clearly, the universe likes crabs. I wonder if the first aliens we meet will be crab-shaped. Now, while Hippocrates gave us the name Carcinos, it was Galen who called any benign neoplasia an onkos, meaning tumor, and used carcinos only for malignant tumors. He also later added the oma at the end, giving us the word we use today, carcinoma. All right, how about a little vascular surgery? It's hard to believe now, but in Galen's time, it was believed that arteries contained pneuma, or air, rather than blood. This is thought to be due to the fact that the large arteries often appear empty upon death. He disproved this with a fairly simple experiment, which I've outlined before, but it's worth repeating. He simply incised an artery between two ligatures and showed that it contained blood. Unfortunately, he did postulate a theory that would delay understanding of blood circulation for centuries. Galen believed that blood was created in the liver from ingested foods and flows to the right side of the heart. From there, some goes to the lungs where it gives off so-called sooty vapors, and some flows through invisible pores into the left side of the heart, where it gains vital spirits when mixed with pneuma brought in by the trachea. Several arteries flow into a rete mirabla at the base of the brain, where vital spirits are then changed to animal spirits before and distributed through the rest of the body via nerves. Now there's a lot to unpack here, but let's just focus on the invisible pores in the heart and the rete mirabla. Galen proposed that the interventricular septum, which is part of the heart that separates the left and right ventricles, contained tiny pores that allowed the blood to pass through. Anatomists would look for these non-existent pores for centuries, until Vesalius would put the final nail in that coffin nearly 1,400 years later. Now, the rete mirabla is arguably an even more interesting error, meaning wonderful network in Latin. This is a plexus of arteries and veins that acts as a countercurrent exchanger, allowing for the exchange of heat, gases, and ions at the base of the brain. While it was first described by Herophilus of Alexandria, it was Galen who described this structure in his work, Anatomic Procedures, and believed that this vascular plexus transformed vital spirits into animal spirits, as mentioned, which gave humans imagination and intellect, and was then transported through the body by nerves. But there's one problem. While it does exist in ungulates, meaning hooved animals like sheep, which Galen did dissect, and some other animals, it does not exist in humans. And despite this fact, it would be centuries before this error was corrected by the anatomists of the Renaissance period, including Berengario de Carpi, Niccolo Massa, and of course, Andreas Vesalius. In his magnum opus, De Humani Corporis Fabrica, mentioned earlier and published in 1543, he eliminated it and wrote, quote, how much has been attributed to Galen, easily leader of the professors of dissection, by those physicians and anatomists who have followed him, and often against reason? In confirmation, there is that blessed and wonderful plexus reticularis, which that man everywhere inculcates in his books, 
there is nothing of which physicians speak more often. They have never seen it, for it is almost non-existent in the human body, yet they describe it from Galen's teaching. Indeed, I myself cannot wonder enough at my own stupidity and too great trust in the writings of Galen and other anatomists. Yes, I, who so much labored in my love for Galen, that I never undertook to dissect a human head in public without that of a lamb or ox at hand, so as to supply what I could in no way find in that of man, and to impress upon it, to the spectators, lest I be charged with failure to find that plexus so universally familiar by name. For the soporal arteries quite fail to produce such a plexus reticularis as that which Galen recounts, unquote. Another example of the importance of demonstrable evidence over dogma. Galen also covered one of the more routine operations of blood vessels, the treatment of varicose veins, which is surprisingly not that different from what we do today. Quote, In varicose veins of the legs, we mark out the whole extent of them by scratches on the outside, then put them on their backs, take hold of the skin surface and divide that first, then lift up the varicosity with a hook and tie it off, and do the same thing at all the incisions. Or we pull them out with a varicocele hook and cut off the ends. Or we pass a thread through the coils of veins with a probe and pull them up and take them out, end quote. All right, how about a little thoracic surgery? In addition to the excision of osteomyelitis of the sternum in the son of a slave, as we described in the previous episode, Galen also described the treatment of empyema, which is a collection of pus in the chest cavity. Quote, First incise the skin between the ribs with a broad knife, then wind the blade of the knife with a strip of linen leaving out the point to the breadth of a thumbnail and push it in. Then, when you have let out as much pus as you think best, stuff the wound with a drain of raw flax to which a thread is attached. Let out the pus once a day, end quote. Orthopedic surgery. Galen described the anatomy of a number of muscles and was the first to recognize that there are protagonist and antagonist muscles, causing movement in opposite directions. Realizing that muscles can only exert a pulling force and cannot push themselves back into their original positions. He did this through experiments in animals, cutting individual muscles and groups, and with a mechanical lever model made of articulated bones and thongs attached in proper places to simulate muscles. Galen developed a method of tendon repair that can be summarized as follows. A. Tendon approximation by sutures, especially after transverse division. B. Proper bandaging is enough in longitudinal injuries. C. When the edges of the ruptured tendon are ragged, he trimmed them. And D. The stitches should include each of the muscle and membrane layer. Of course, he managed fractures as had been done for centuries, but I didn't really find a lot that would add to this. Okay, now some neurosurgery. Now, to begin with, Galen had a surprisingly advanced understanding of the neuromuscular system for the time, stating, quote, when I tell them this and add that all voluntary movement is produced by muscles controlled by nerves coming from the brain, they call me a teller of marvelous tales. No one has ever been able to withstand me when I have demonstrated the muscles of respiration and voice, something we covered in that last episode. The muscles move certain organs, but they themselves require, in order to be moved, certain nerves from the brain. And if you intercept one of these with a ligature, Immediately, the muscle in which the nerve is inserted and the organ moved are rendered motionless, end quote. Now, amazingly, he came to the realization that nerves carry signals to muscles by noting that fishermen, when hitting the Mediterranean electric eel with clubs and spearing irons, would get numbness in their hands. 
He also introduced the concept of a central nervous system by proposing that the spinal cord was an extension of the brain, and even knew that injuries to the left side of the brain created deficits on the right side of the body and vice versa. Galen also named the thalamus, which means chamber or anteroom, which he thought was connected to the optic nerves, providing vital spirits for vision. In ancient Rome, trauma would have been quite common, so it's no surprise that Galen had extensive knowledge of the treatment of skull fractures. Here is his description, quote, In the following kinds of fracture of the skull, surgery is required. Fracture, depressed fracture, fracture with hematoma, separation and lifting, or vaulted fracture, and sixth, the so-called trichiasis, a term we use today for eyelashes that grow back toward the eye, which is evidently a superficial gouging of the bone. All kinds of fractures of the skull are treated by chiseling out the fractured parts, cutting clear around the fracture with a chisel. The ancients used to cut them out with circular trephines, which they rotated. Later head augers were employed, which gave starting points for the chisels. For the moderns, the chisels alluded to above suffice." End quote. It does seem funny to hear Galen refer to the ancients and his own contemporaries as the moderns. However, the idea of trephining the skull is in fact the oldest documented surgical procedure performed. Trepanation or trephination, they are used interchangeably but have slightly different meanings, in involves removing a piece of bone from the skull. Now the first skull with evidence of this was discovered by Benedictine monk Bernard de Montfaucon in 1685 in Coquerel, France. Since then, over 1,500 trephine skulls have been found all around the world, mainland Europe, Scandinavia, North America, Russia, China, and South America, perhaps most famously in Peru from the Incan Empire. The oldest specimens date back 7,000 years to the Neolithic period. To put that in perspective, this is the period that began in 10,000 BCE with the development of farming cereals and ended around 4,500 BCE with the start of metallurgy. Now, 5 to 10% of all skulls found from the Neolithic period have evidence of trephining, including men, women, and even children, although the majority are adult males. Some are incomplete, meaning the procedure was halted, and some even show evidence of healing. Now, the prevailing theory was that it was done to release evil spirits, which likely meant mental illness, but I did come across a newer, interesting idea. Given the violent life of Stone Age man, head trauma would have been pretty common, especially among adult males. Trauma victims may have been observed to be dead, only to suddenly come back to life. People who had concussions or other types of acute brain injuries that would spontaneously resolve. And here's a quote from an article I read, quote, the head was chosen for the procedure because of the unique and universally accumulated experience observed by primitive man in the Stone Age with ubiquitous head injuries during altercations in hunting, end quote. Those skulls with incomplete trepanning probably awoke during the procedure, and those with healing survived it coming back to life in front of their eyes. <gasps> Interesting stuff. But back to Galen. Now, he also identified that injuries to the spinal cord at different levels caused different deficits. Those between the first and third vertebrae caused instant death. Injuries between the third and fourth vertebrae stopped respiration. And damage below the sixth vertebrae caused paralysis of the thoracic muscles. And finally, injuries at lower levels led to paralysis of the lower limbs, bladder, and intestine. Finally, Galen also described the great cerebral vein, which now bears his name. This vein of Galen is a short, valveless vein 
formed by the union of the two internal cerebral veins and the basal veins of Rosenthal, which was named for the German surgeon and anatomist who described them in 1824. A vein of Galen malformation is a rare but potentially fatal congenital abnormality where there is arteriovenous shunting of the blood, meaning the arteries connect directly to the veins rather than going through a capillary network. This leads to high cardiac output because of the high pressure in the veins, which can result in heart failure. Unfortunately, this can be treated by endovascular techniques by injecting materials into, the, into it in a process known as embolization. Okay, let's talk about some genitourinary surgery. Now, one of the most impactful contributions Galen made in this area was recognizing that urine was made in the kidneys and not the bladder. The previous belief, as postulated by Asclepiades, who lived from 129 to 40 BCE and was a Greek physician who practiced in Rome, was that ingested fluid somehow vaporized and passed through the walls of the stomach and intestines into the bladder, where it condensed into urine. Galen also coined the term ureter and used ligatures and sections to establish the function of the ureters and to demonstrate the unidirectional flow of urine from the kidneys to the bladder. He even noted that the oblique insertion of the ureters into the bladder created a one-way ureterovesical valve. Galen described the treatment of phimosis, which is when the foreskin won't retract back over the glands. Side note, it's a Greek word that literally means muzzling. And hypospadias, when the urethra opens on the underside of the penis rather than at the tip. Now here it is, quote, There are two cures for shortening of the prepuce, one by undermining the skin on the inside, another by incising superficially around the outside in a circle so that the penis may be drawn in. For phimosis, one operates on the prepuce by drawing it up as far as possible, then releasing the scar with a phlebotome, which is an instrument used for phlebotomy or drawing of blood. Hypospadias is a congenital condition where the urethra opens beneath, under the so-called frenum. It is cured by boring a hole through the top of the glands and inserting a small tube. In the so-called impervious cases, where they have a very small opening or none at all, we operate as follows. We open them with the sharp point of the lancet and then push in the finger and free them all around, end quote. Now, he also described the removal of bladder stones using a technique that would not change even up to the point used by William Cheseldon in the 18th century, see podcast 67 on the history of lithotomy, as well as the treatment of spermatoceles, varicoceles, hydroceles, and hernias that extend into the scrotum. Okay, how about a little obstetrics and gynecology? Now, most of his writings focused on adult males, typically of the middle and upper classes of Rome, so there is little written on women's health. In The Epidemics, Galen does have a set of female case histories in which he is clearly influenced by Hippocrates' belief that female health is dependent on reproductive function, a sort of therapeutic procreation. Galen believed that the fetus was nourished by the surplus material which would otherwise be evacuated by menstruation. Much of his understanding of the physiology of pregnancy was based on balances of fluids and temperatures. Now here's a quote from Galen, quote, For it seems that the disease was engendered in the woman by the retention of the partum purge. For the retention of the menses tends to produce disease, but is not as damaging to the woman as retention after birth, since not only is this retention in excess, but it also produces considerable kakokaimi. I may be mispronouncing that, but it means evil humors. For the embryo attracts the most useful blood to itself as nourishment, and the poorer remainder becomes the cause of 
Kakokaimi, in the pregnant, which nature evacuates after birth, end quote. And there is also a belief that female fetuses were attracted to the left side of the uterus and associated with cold temperature, whereas males were on the right side and associated with heat. As well, Galen claimed that a female fetus was more likely to cause disease and be more difficult to deliver. But speaking of delivery, to his credit, Galen rejected Hippocrates' belief in his text on the natural faculties. Hippocrates believed that the child plays the major active role in delivery, with the mother playing a relatively minor and passive role. Galen stated that birth was essentially a function of the expulsive faculty or apocritic dynamis of the uterus, to which the mother contributes by exerting relevant non-uterine muscles, with the baby making no contributions. So at least he was on the right track there. As for gynecology, there is not much written, at least that I could find. Certainly, as mentioned earlier, the female menstrual cycle was very much misunderstood, thought to be a way of evacuating excess moisture, as women were thought to be spongier than men. And really, that's how it's written. And so, while much attention was paid to menses clinically, there was little understanding of the actual causes of abnormalities. There was a deeply rooted sexism in classical medicine where the male body was considered the ideal, and women's bodies were, in essence, abnormal. As many of you likely know, the name for the surgical removal of the uterus that we use today is hysterectomy. Now, it's no coincidence that it sounds a lot like the word hysteria, as they share a root word, the Greek hystera, which means womb. In the writings of Hippocrates, which we know Galen treated as gospel, so to speak, the uterus was considered a mobile, living creature. How they came to this conclusion is beyond me, but here is a quote from Plato, a contemporary of Hippocrates, quote, When the uterus has remained sterile for a long time after having passed the suitable age, this organ becomes impatient. It does not accept this state, and because it begins to wander throughout the body, obstructing the orifices by which the breath goes out and preventing respiration, it throws the body into the most extreme states and provokes illnesses of all kinds, end quote. And so behavior such as hysteria was blamed on this unhappy wandering uterus. The Galen, based on the anatomical discoveries by those Alexandrian physicians we touched on in the previous episode, interpreted the female body in light of the male body and made analogies between the ovaries and testicles and between the uterus and scrotum. He thought that female reproductive organs remained in the body due to a lack of vital heat. And here's a quote from Galen, quote, Just as the human species is the most perfect of all the animals, within the human the man is more perfect than the woman, and the reason for his perfection is his greater heat, for heat is the first instrument of nature, end quote. Okay, let's just cover a few more things very quickly. Now, he also described treating ophthalmological diseases, including trachiasis, hydatids, which were probably echinococcal cysts, tumors in the canthus, pterygia, staphyloma, which is an outpouching of the wall of the globe, suffusions, chronic and excessive discharges, calculi of the eyelids, growing together of the tissues around the eyes, and lacrimal fistulae. For the otolaryngologists out there, Galen described treating boils on the top and sides of the gum, uh, so-called relaxed uvulae, which he would seize with the forceps and cut clean off, ouch, and even removal of enlarged tonsils with scissors. He also traded nasal polyps and repaired cleft lips. As mentioned in the previous episode, Galen also identified the function of the recurrent laryngeal nerve by cutting it in a squealing pig, thereby silencing the poor animal. 
He reprimanded ignorant surgeons who severed these nerves, rendering patients mute when performing neck operations such as goiter removal. Apparently, the communicating branch of the internal laryngeal nerve with the recurrent laryngeal nerve is known as the nerve of Galen, as he was the first to describe it. All right, that was a relatively brief overview of some of Galen's writings on anatomy and surgery. I, for one, was actually fairly surprised at how much was known in his time and impressed with his logical approach to most things. Of course, some of these more glaring errors have to be seen in light of the deeply entrenched theories that he inherited from Hippocrates and others. So what have we learned over these two episodes on one of the most important figures in the history of Western medicine? Galen strove to make a system from the teachings of physicians before him and added his own observations through a lifetime of serving patients from the lowest slave to the emperor himself. He took a practical approach based on experience and observation, documentation, and experimentation. His contributions to the knowledge of anatomy and physiology, and more importantly on their application to medicine and surgery, would create a legacy like few others in medical history. My take is that he did not necessarily intend for his word to become dogma, as he himself was willing to challenge his predecessors, and certainly his contemporaries, yet this is exactly what did occur. Perhaps the best takeaway here is to appreciate the works, understand that he was flawed like everyone else, and remember the importance of challenging established beliefs when new evidence provides us with new knowledge. Okay, time for another suture tale. This episode's suggestion comes from a listener who messaged me through Facebook, I believe. I have quite a backlog to work through, so if you're still waiting to hear your suggestion, I'm working on it. And I should have mentioned this before, but let me know if you want a shout-out or would rather remain anonymous. Anyways, the subject today is the American ENT surgeon John J. Conley. He was born in 1912 in a small steel mill town in Pennsylvania called Carnegie and went to the University of Pittsburgh for his undergraduate education as well as medical school. During his intern year at Mercy Hospital, also in Pittsburgh, one of the nuns who ran the hospital suggested that Conley go somewhere to train in cardiology and then return to Mercy to practice. Shortly after starting at Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, Conley was diagnosed with a heart arrhythmia known as paroxysmal atrial tachycardia. He was told that cardiology would be too stressful for his condition and that he should seek out an easier and less stressful field with better working hours, you know, like a surgical specialty. And so Dr. Conley began training in otolaryngology, or ENT, residency, at the same hospital. Following this, he served in the military during World War II, and this involved working in otolaryngology and plastics and reconstructive and maxillofacial surgery with the U.S. Army Medical Corps, both stateside and in the South Pacific Theater. Anyways, this experience with surgical reconstruction of war wounds would lead him to the field of reconstruction on patients who'd undergone ablative head and neck surgery. Following his military service, Dr. Conley returned to New York City to work at Memorial Hospital with an expert in the field named Dr. George T. Pack. Due to the disruption of services during the war, there was plenty of work to be done to catch up on the backlog, allowing Dr. Conley to develop his unique approach to head and neck surgery. In 1946, he became chief of head and neck surgery at St. Vincent's Hospital and Medical Center, a position he held for 48 years. Dr. Conley also became a clinical professor of otolaryngology at the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia and trained countless residents and fellows. He was also the first president of the American Society of Head and Neck Surgery, among many other honors. Now, I just want to take a second to cover St. Vincent's Hospital. 
Founded by the Sisters of Charity, which was a Catholic order of nuns, it opened on November 1st, 1849, during a cholera epidemic. By 1870, it introduced its first horse-drawn ambulance. Over the years, it became part of the fabric of Greenwich Village, which is where it's located, and was involved in numerous historical events. The hospital received survivors of the Titanic in 1912. It was at the forefront of the AIDS epidemic, opening the first and largest AIDS ward on the East Coast in 1984, and within two years, a third of the hospital's beds were filled with AIDS patients. St. Vincent's was a major site for triaging the survivors of the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center in 2001, and eight years later, treated the victims of the Miracle on the Hudson when a passenger plane had an emergency landing in the river. Financial hardships led to the closing of St. Vincent's on April 30, 2010, and the buildings were demolished and replaced by luxury condos, a piece of history lost. Now let's get back to Dr. Conley. Now some of his work included developing operations for rehabilitating the larynx and grafting facial nerves, as well as reconstruction of the mandibles or jawbones lost to cancer. Dr. Conley pioneered the concept of single-stage reconstruction after head and neck surgery, utilizing skin and muscle. Now I want to emphasize this, as many sources indicate that the integration of far-reaching block resections in head and neck tumors with immediate reconstructive surgery was his greatest contribution and changed the practice of ENT. On a personal note, he was also a prolific artist and poet and played the flute with a chamber music group. Dr. Conley also developed an interest in the field of medical ethics, and the John J. Conley Department of Ethics was established in 1998 at St. Vincent's, as well as the John Conley Foundation for Ethics and Philosophy in Medicine. The foundation sponsors an annual ethics essay contest, which has been run by the AMA Journal of Ethics since 2004. And if that's of interest to you, I'd encourage you to have a look at the website, as it also includes the essays of previous winners. In a tragic turn, Dr. Conley was afflicted with the disease he had battled his entire career. He developed a primary tumor at the skull base involving the facial nerve and then another malignant growth in the parotid region. He passed away on September 21, 1999, at the age of 87. Now let me quote one of his colleagues, Dr. Eugene Myers, as they knew him best, to paint a picture of the man. Quote, Among the great legacies that John Conley left to all of us whose lives he touched, is not only the benefit of his keen intellect and his ability to perform and teach surgical technique, but his philosophy that the physician should comport himself ethically and with dignity and humility, and should never lose the opportunity to be seen by his patient as an individual who is interested in his or her problem and is willing to devote the time and power of concentration to listen to what his patients have to say and to help in this way to bring the doctor-patient relationship to the very highest level." And finally, let's end the episode with a poem by Dr. Conley. The subject is the importance of medical meetings, something we haven't been able to do in person for quite some time, but hopefully we'll be coming back to soon. It's titled, A Meeting of Fellows and Friends. There is no equal, indeed no mimic, or facsimile in feeling, to the flesh of the fellows and those gianted friends who grew with me in a peril of tension, that we might loose the truth and this threatened dream, as real as the heart without sardonics of pain, in a surgical sincerity beyond the dullness of work, laced with that discovery that made us more than our hopes by living one-on-one in open intimacy, destined to forge this union by the uniqueness of love for your gift to my heart 
and my friendship for your life. John Conley, MD. Well, that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, next time, I think there'll be a collaborative episode on the history of stomas, which will be quite interesting. You won't want to miss it. But in the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.